0: It's a really, really big 98 Not Out welcome to um, another great guest that we've got for you this week. It is um, speaking to us uh, from life in Pakistan. It's Mr. Jonty Rhodes. Jonty, how's Pakistan doing?
1: How are you doing? Hello, Paul. Pakistan's doing really well. I'm actually here doing a little bit of commentary work and uh, with a few of the, the UK boys. Got Mark Butcher and Dominic Cork. So we, we're, the, we're the overseas crew. And then Waka Yunus, Bazid Khan, and uh, two of the ladies as well, Rouge and Sana Mir. So we've got quite a collection of uh, expertise. Apparently, we're experts. <laughs> That's good. We've and the, great the great Ramis. The great Ramis Raja.
0: Lovely, yeah. he's,
1: he's hosting the show. Yeah.
0: How is it out there with the, the, the PSL at the moment? Because obviously, we've had this big break uh, because of COVID. Were you there when it
1: first kicked off in February? Yeah, I was actually. At the, at the start of the PSL, because the years prior to this, they had played most of the tournament in Dubai and, and then come across for the actual playoffs. This year, in 2020, it was the entire tournament started in Pakistan. But then I was actually, I had to shoot across to India to play in an old man's tournament. There was a, a road safety awareness tournament. Oh, wow. And South Africa, West Indies, Australia, India, of course, Sri Lanka, Uh, we got one game and then we we also got shut down and sent home so probably saved the hamstrings just playing the one game
0: it's a shame because the atmosphere looked fantastic um, in February with the crowds there and the whole of the tournament being played in Pakistan for the first time Um, has it dented that being back there with with no crowds and
1: fanatical supporters present well absolutely I mean there's a there's a massive difference and I just I mean I had 10 weeks in Dubai with the IPL with a, a very similar scenario you know, I think from a playing, a playing perspective, you, it doesn't matter if they're, if they're 20,000 people or if it's empty. You still bring your A game to the event. But, you know, when, when, the, time, when the sort of game is tight and you're you, the home team and you've got the crowd behind you, I think it does make a slight difference to be able to utilize that and kind of juice your own game up. So, yeah, very, very evident empty stadium. But, you know, we've had, we had a double header on the first day, the, the second, elimin, second eliminator on the second day. And a day off, and it's a final tomorrow. So, you know, it's so condensed and um, pretty congested that you know you don't really have time to sort of soak up that lack of atmosphere. There's a lot riding on every single game, every single over. So from, from that perspective, you know, the cricket's been really good. Um, you know, as in, in Pakistan, they, they produce young, fast bowlers. And sure enough, there's been a few of them knocking stumps over again. And uh, it's been great to see.
0: Harinder, we were talking about this on the show last week. The, the cricket calendar globally is really congested now with people trying to catch up and fit everything in. Sure. Um, you've just come from the IPL with Kings XI Punjab and um, teaching Chris Gale how to field. <laughs> 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 no,
1: that was, was Nicholas Pooran. That there, there was Nicholas Pooran. That wasn't Chris <laughs> Gale. You look the
0: same height. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, you've gone straight from there to here. Um, and then there's um, well some players are going to go to um, New Zealand were you telling me about um, one of the quarantine uh, you know
1: the reality of living yep. the Was there a, was there a situation there you were telling me about well the, I mean the interesting thing the, the Australian players in our team and the Indian players that were going to go to Australia they pretty much the day that we lost our final game it was against Chennai so that was the first of November so the last of our round-robin matches the players had been told in the morning, so if, if we lose, we the tournament. We, we wouldn't make the playoffs. They were told to pack their bags in case we lost because then they had to leave straight from the game. So it was Maxwell, um, K.O. Raul, Mind Agarwal, uh, Mommel Shami. Those guys then got on a separate bus and went to a separate hotel straight after the match because they went into, into a quarantine, a separate bubble, and waited for the rest of the IPL to finish because they would then fly over with all the Australians and with all the Indian players. So our poor blokes didn't, you know, because we got knocked out on the 1st of November, they had to wait until the 10th before they could get on a plane and then start a two-week quarantine in Australia. So it's been pretty tough for for some of the boys sitting around a hotel.
0: Yeah, they've effectively been in quarantine for a month then,
1: start to finish, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Two months there, two months when they get home. Yeah. You know, the Australian... New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand has got an even more interesting scenario where Mitch McClennigan apparently didn't book himself because there's only a few hotels which have been set aside as quarantine hotels on arrival and you have to book yourself a room. And Mitch McLennigan apparently forgot uh, Fast Bowlers and he can only get home on about mid-February. So he wow. can't get back to New Zealand until mid february because there's just no room... In fact, Rami's Rogers trying to get across to commentate. And uh, they're just saying, if we can't get you a room in one of the quarantine hotels, you can't come. So they're not making, I mean, they're just being pretty strict on everybody. There's no, you know, okay, we'll we'll make a plan, we'll find you a room, or we'll we'll squeeze you in. Um, Rules are the rules. And, you know, some of the guys are are, are taking a bit of a toll on that.
0: It's a a worry, really, because, you know, there's been a few articles that I've seen and a few people have been talking about the effects on mental health from being you know, stuck in a hotel room. Um, we talked to Shane Watson last week and he said that he hadn't even given him a key to make sure that he stayed there. So right. it's almost like being in prison really. You know, it's, um, mm. And you have to wonder with well, some of the guys playing so much cricket and, and traveling the whole time.
1: Well, I mean, Dominic Cork would just make an interesting point because he had two weeks when he arrived to commentate in India for the IPL. So the IPL played in Dubai, but a lot of the studio work was, from India itself. So staying in, in a hotel and the entire um, sort of studio crew was, had to do 14 days in India and literally someone would arrive in PPE, knock on the door, leave all your food. So that, you know, he had the same food day in and day out for, for two weeks where he had also on a sort of a plastic serving tray, um, plastic utensils. And he said it really felt, and he thought he kind of, you know he's. He's quite a strong-willed individual, Dominic Cork, and he thought he had this under control. But he reckoned after day nine and still five to go. You know, He's also been requested now to go from here to Sri Lanka to, because the Lankan Premier League has just That's been right. announced. And he said he's got to do a week in quarantine and he cannot face another day, let alone another week, in, in, in quarantine.
0: That's what I mean. Now, reading up on you, you're off to Sweden to, uh, yeah. to head coach of... Uh, Sweden. is that, that where you're going after this is finished? Are you going up there? Well, just firstly, I'm the only coach.
1: I'm the only you. coach. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. have actually just come from there. So, from the IPL. So, on the we we finished our last game on the first, sadly, of November, and I flew across to Sweden for literally a week. And um, you know, I've got family. We're relocating on the fifth of December. They're arriving in Sweden. So frantically, you know, registering with sort of authorities um, from tax authorities, opening bank accounts, finding a house for a family of six of us. And uh, our school year in South Africa finishes on the 4th, 3rd of December. So the family's flying on the 4th of December. And yeah, so tomorrow the final's here in Karachi. And I leave directly after the final heading for Sweden. Yes, a a new, a very new role for me. Um, I've been following, I must say, you know, Darren, I've been doing a lot of development and grassroots coaching over the last two years because I had a two-year gap or break from the IPL. And, and in those two years, I went to places like Nepal twice, did coaching clinics there, Malawi. And just been following what's been happening in Europe and North America is a big market. I do have a, an older daughter, my oldest. She's 20, and she's actually on a, on a hockey scholarship, a field hockey in North America. And I was hoping to get across and do some coaching camps to, to see us, obviously a, a long way away from South Africa. And, um, you know, been following what sort of developments in, in associate member countries, cricket, to the extent that, you know, when looked up where to go, European cricket, there's been a lot of on, on the European Cricket League. Um, so at one stage, the only cricket taking place in the world was in Europe. So, so yeah, a very new venture and something I'm, I'm pretty excited about. So your daughter gets a hockey from her dad, did she? Because didn't you play, well, did you play for South Africa hockey? No, I never got to play. I mean, I'm often credited with playing, so I, I keep very quiet about that, unless I'm really odd. <laughs> um, so, so thanks very much for bursting that bubble, Paul. Um, but yeah, I was actually... So, long story. I mean, 92, cricket, the Cricket World Cup, we got invited even before democracy. I mean, South Africa wasn't a democracy until 94. And we got invited to that Cricket World Cup in Australia because the two, there used to be a a white and a a non-white cricket board. And Ali Bachler had joined them together. I mean, he had such vision, um, really passionate about cricket and taking cricket to the whole country. So Nelson Mandela was being released. They were unbanning the ANC. So there was talk of of South Africa finally working towards a democracy and, and we were invited back. So the hockey guys thought that with the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, maybe we'll get a late invite too. And they chose a squad of about 20 odd players just in case we got a late call-up. So I was in that sort of penciled-in squad and nothing materialized. Obviously, qualifying for Olympics is very different for a, hey, you guys, what are you doing next week? You want to come play in the World Cup? Um, <laughs> so hockey, it just it didn't happen. I mean, qualifying for the Olympics is like a four-year plan. Or some, some people a six or eight-year plan. So yeah, no late invites there. So I so never got the opportunity to play hockey for South Africa. I played state at university. I was playing state cricket and state hockey. So it's probably no surprise. It did take me five years to get a three-year degree.
0: <laughs> it could have been, did I reach somewhere that football could have been a thing for you as well when you were a young oh,
1: kid? For sure. I was dead keen on my, on my soccer, football. As in South Africa, though, we, we had to play at least one sport, if not two, every term. So cricket and tennis, hockey and soccer, athletics. And uh, as a 12 and 13-year-old, when I didn't realize that I still had to grow with the other kids, you know, I was quite a nippy center forward and could put the ball in the back of the net, which I suppose as a center forward is what you, you're supposed to do. But then from age 13, I just didn't grow at all. And as a, you know, I, I was still quick on the, on the ground, but nothing in there. I just couldn't contest. And I also had a mild form of epilepsy. I just started getting whacked on the head pretty hard, yeah, bumping that's... my head with defenders. And, and my, my parents just said, okay, well, I was never allowed to play rugby um, from an early start. But then soccer, I started getting concussed way too frequently for anybody's liking. So, you know, and at the high school, I went to a thousand boys. There was a rugby school and I was one of 60 kids in the whole school who played hockey. And there was definitely no soccer. So, you know, they kind of gave us a concession. Okay, you can play hockey if you want to. But soccer just wasn't happening. So yeah, at that stage, you kind of. So, so football for me was something that I, I'd grown up. I mean, people ask me about my sporting heroes and we, because of the sporting isolation in South Africa. Due to apartheid. I mean, the irony of the fact was that my sporting hero was Pele. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, so I, for me, he was, he was the best forward in the world. Yeah, Kevin Keegan came out. He had a, a coaching clinic with Durban City. And um, we went down as a, as a Natal junior under 12 team. Uh, as, the, as the state junior team, we had a coaching session with the Durban City guys and Kevin Keegan. So, yeah, poster on the wall. Um, I think it was still sponsored by Stimmerol. Chewing gum, I still remember it. Um, just a nasty <laughs> chewing gum and all the frizzy hair. Yeah. Kevin Keegan had this mop of frizzy, frizzy hair. But, <laughs> gee, what a player.
0: <laughs> so, I've got a question from one of our listeners who's pinged in. Um, from Cape Town, actually. A guy called Alex Schoen. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he said, ask, ask John T about the moment he first came to national interest. The last ball of a domestic 50-over tournament in 1991. No chance of winning, but Richard Snell of Transvaal bowled a chest-high beamer, which Jaunty smashed into the crowd and won the match of the following extra ball after kids had to be cleared of the pitch. <laughs> you remember that?
1: I do remember that, and it's quite interesting. I mean, a chest-high for most people is just a low, full toss, but when it's bowled at me, I'm, I'm a bit short. I'm vertically <laughs> challenged, so it does become a, be- becomes a beamer by default. And, you know, 91, when, when somebody bowled a sort of waist-high full toss, you weren't automatically given the extra run. So, we needed seven to win off the last ball. So, obviously, we'd lost the game because, the, you know, unless he bowled a wide, which he wasn't going to do. Um, the no ball meant that I hit the ball for six. We were still tied. So, the next ball I then hit for four. So, basically, one ball went for ten. Um, but, you know, Richard Snell was somebody I'd grown up with and I'd played um, South African schools cricket with. Uh, he'd, be, he'd been a Durban boy, so I knew him really well. So he just, he literally tiptoed into the crease because he didn't want to bowl a wide, didn't want to bowl a no ball, a foot no ball. And he just let it go. And it, it, was, a, it was a dolly hit. I mean, it, it, And at that stage, I was so angry because we would come so close. But yet, seven runs short, impossible to win. So I do remember that. And it did. It, it was a semifinal. We beat Transvaal. We were obviously favorites at that stage. They were kind of the end of the, the Mean Machine era. So, the likes of Graham Pollock had just retired, Clive Rice still playing, you know, some great names in South African cricket. And suddenly they were knocked out by these upstarts, and especially this 19 year old kid who looked like he was a baseball player, could field a bit, but man, he couldn't bat unless it was a chest high beamer.
0: So, so t- 10 off the last ball. So, you could have done something like that yeah, in, the, yep. in the World World Cup a few years earlier. Oh,
1: don't tell me. <laughs> We've one more semi final, 99. You yeah, know, I've had too many one run debacles. Uh,
0: we well, talking about.
1: Yeah, sorry, Darren.
0: Yeah, talking of World Cups, I mean '92 no! announced for. Okay, <laughs> <two. laughs> we'll get to the other ones, uh, and the Superman run out of Inzamam, which put your name firm. And and I would urge everyone that's listening to this to go onto YouTube and uh, and look for the the greatest run out of all time. I think it's titled um, where. I mean, it was, it was uh, that World Cup. I mean, there were legends on your side. You were playing against legends. And uh, on that occasion in the middle, it was Indomarm and there was Imran Khan at the other end. And they'd gone for a, a quick single and Inzi set off.
1: <laughs> an Inzi quick single? Well, <laughs> yeah. No, he was 19 at the time. Let's just um, <laughs> put that in perspective. So I was going to water. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean,
0: they call it the Superman run out because you did just get hold of the ball run back and then launch yourself t- taking out all three stumps from uh, from what I remember as well um but then you've got yourself a reputation of doing these incredible runouts um Ricky Ponting, Alan Border I mean the list goes on um to me that was the first time that we'd really seen that kind of fielding uh, I mean it, we're so used to it now like you said about um, Nicholas Poran and some of the stuff we see at the IPL. I mean, fielding is really now. Yeah, I think it's even gone to a, a different level with the, mm. the athleticism, the fitness. One hundred percent. Yep. But I think you were the one that first demonstrated. You know, growing up with at that time with the likes of Mike Gatting and Ian Botham, not necessarily <laughs> the most. Oh, tough, no. Yeah. The cat. <laughs> the cat. Yeah, none of whom are known for their athleticism <laughs> in the field. <laughs> what was it? That yes. <laughs> did Did you was that in, instinctive to you, or was it something you worked on? Um, how did you get
1: that skill? Sarah, Yo, you know, from a field. to first see the run out. I mean, literally that, that did launch my career. So, Inzi and the photographer, and it wasn't something I'd never practiced that. I just knew that, you know, I think it's really important, no matter what you're doing, you try and play to your strengths. And for me, I was, you know, I was a stopper at backward point. That was my main job. If I, if I took catches, if I got run outs, it was a bonus. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm one of four coaches in an IPL franchise. And, and wherever you go, you know, whatever team you're playing in, you've got, and, you know, almost a, a specific fielding coach or your three of your coaches are good enough to, to work on your fielding. So I had to take down a teammate. And, and, and at that stage, there weren't too many guys. Just Hansi maybe come down and Hansi Kornir come down and hit me catches. But what I would do as a, as a hockey... And it was just a combination of, of all the sports that i played. Because, you know, you watch a tennis player return serve. He, he wants to go to his backhand or his forehand. He employs the split jump so he can move to either wing. Um, as, a, you know, as, a, as a forward, center forward on, on the soccer field and the hockey field, I knew that coming in towards the goals, the goalkeeper always came off his line to cut the angle down. Because if he stood on the, on the line, just, it's too easy to go either corner. Sorry, my arms are extending out of frame Yeah. So that was the same thing. So that was my, my sort of ploy was, let me get in close, sometimes really close, like almost a second gully. But it just meant that I then cut the angle down, although then the ball came off the bat a lot quicker. So I didn't have much time to react, which was a good thing. It, it actually forced me to be ready for every single ball. So, you know, firstly I loved I had a lot of energy. I mean, I don't know if you noticed it as a you know, as a younger, I was just running around, Like you know, stretching Allen Donald's cap from fine leg and taking to the umpire. And um, I had a lot of energy to burn as a hockey player, I was always coming into cricket season really fit. And it was never an issue for me to, you know, kind of trot through 50 overs. I wanted to be in the action and and usually with the South African pace attack, we didn't have much spin at that stage. It was always kind of fourth stump, top of off stump, so, Backward Point was the busiest zone to be in. Um, when Pat Simcox came onto the scene, then Midwicket was was the area where the ball was going to be. And I just wanted to be where the ball was. So, we, we as, a, as a team that went to that World Cup in 92, I mean, Kepler was, he had played cricket for Australia, Kepler vessels, come back and captain South Africa. And he was the only guy on our side who had any international experience. So, he just said, you know, guys, I mean, Dave Richardson was 32, Peter Kirsten, was the same age, 32, Hansi, myself at 22, Andrew Hudson, 26. And no matter how young or old we were from a, an age point of view, none of us had any international experience. So Kepa said, two areas we can be the best team in the world regardless of that lack of experience. One, we can be the fittest team, which is always a worrying sign when the captain tells you that. We can be the fittest team in the world. And number two, we can be the best fielding team. So not just John T. Rhodes as a, as a fielder. Um, we as a side try to focus on you know our fielding. So I think most countries kind of had a few high balls, a couple of catches, and, and that was as much as they, as they did with regards to fielding. I mean, we as a team worked hard as a unit, and then I would do extra stuff just because I really loved it. I, liked, I loved the diving around, but I never did anything like that run-out dive before, and I never did it again afterwards. It was just the right thing at the time because as Paul so rightly said, in the, and fast between the wickets, you don't kind of put them in the same sentence, but when he set off, hit him on the pad, and they were going great guns at the time. Him and Imran Khan had a great partnership, about 90-odd. There had been a massive thunderstorm. So the, the rate required had shot through the roof. Because in those days, before Duckworth Lewis, the team batting second, which hopefully will come to that semifinal in the same World Cup, the team batting second, just, you know, they, they really had the tough end of the deal. Because all you did was kind of just cut all the overs that you lost. Just You took them out of your innings. So... So suddenly, Pakistan were going great guns because the outfield was still a bit wet. Bowlers were struggling to control it. So I was on the circle because usually I'm really tired, but I was on the ring saving the boundaries. So when hit the pad, I picked the ball up and I saw Inzi was a long way out. And I could see Imran Khan standing at the non strikers end saying no. So it was a case of this is the set of stumps I'm going for and I didn't back my accuracy. We didn't practice much throwing at the stumps. We didn't have the poke nets. We didn't have, you know, now, as a fielding coach, I've got hitting bats, I've got baseball gloves, I've got nets, I've got stumps at ricochet. So, you know, there's no excuse not to practice. But my, as I said, my role was to stop the ball and catch the ball, and that's what I was doing. So I backed my strength, which was my speed against my accuracy. And as it turned out, Inzy got back a little bit quicker than I anticipated. So for me, the last two meters, the fastest way to get there was just to launch myself into the stumps. And, you know, as it's, it really was a great... An interesting shot, because it was black and white. Yeah. It was an overcast day, so from an exposure point of view, he didn't have a lot of light to work with, so he was just shooting in black and white anyway. But I was then suddenly announced around the world in every cricket playing country, front page, back page, you know, who's this kid, what is he doing? So it was, it was, it was interesting for me, because it literally it launched me from total obscurity. I mean, in South Africa, people are saying, who's this John T. Rhodes guy? Like, He's the guy who hit that six, the ten off the last ball. What else <laughs> does he do? You know, our domestic cricket, there wasn't a lot of it just prior to that, that, uh, that World Cup in 92. So people, I mean, they were excited at the fact that South Africans were there, but Clive Rice had been left out. Jimmy Cook had been left out. All these big names in South Africa for myself and Hansi Kurnia because Kepler wanted fast, young legs in the field. I mean, the MCG was so big in those days. You had to have, a. in fact, the late Dean Jones was about the only player I could that I had seen in that era, throw the ball from the boundary, back to the keeper without a relay throw. And I think he did it just to show that he had the arm. You know, the rest of us were relay throwing it back to the keeper. Two or three relays. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't something that Kepler knew that he wanted younger, faster legs in his team. Batting in the middle order, the same thing. Hit the ball in the gap and run like crazy. So my, my fitness, my fielding certainly was one of the major reasons why I got a shot at that 92 World Cup. And in that one shot, it launched, really launched my career. Who was the keeper at the time that obviously didn't have time to get up to the stumps? Dave Richardson. Yeah, he's 32. He's a lawyer. He probably wasn't even thinking about Throw the ball. (laughs) He wasn't thinking, Don, going to run with it.
0: (laughs) So the semi-final, what are your your recollections there?
1: Oh, I remember we bowled really slowly. Um, I don't think England didn't face their full 50 because there were interesting rules in those days. Dermot Reeve at the end, Graham Hick got got some good runs um, at the top. And, um, you know, Dermot was going great guns. And I think Kepler actually got Alan Donald to slow right down, not bowl the full 50, because then we, we, wouldn't have to, you know, we wouldn't have the full 50 to bat. So there were some interesting rules in that time. And I think Kepler was kind of maximizing his knowledge of that. And, um, and then it got to the stage where, I mean, the game was really in the balance. And the interesting thing was... That nobody had much expectation of us because we were quite an unknown quantity. So, I mean, we hadn't had a great World Cup. We'd lost to Sri Lanka. We'd lost to New Zealand. We'd kind of beaten the teams we thought we were going to lose to and then lost the teams we were hoping to beat. You know, we beat the West Indies. We, we beat Australia. Um, beat Pakistan. Beat India. And, um, you know, we, we, we were up and down throughout that whole tournament. So, in the semi final, was probably in retrospect. I mean, Pakistan just were superb in the final, weren't they? So possibly yeah. you never know what's going to happen in the final. But when we left that World Cup in '92, having been beaten by the rain, according to the whole of South Africa, <laughs> we, you know, we, we would have won the World Cup. So we came home champions without the trophy. So it was <laughs> it was amazing. And we've what suffered in every World Cup since. <laughs> did it lead directly to Duckworth Lewis? Because I mean, yeah, it, I think it, it, did. Have, it changed. I think it did. It did. Cricket, it, did. It? it did. It did from there. So see, after that, it was. Duck with Lewis, was then introduced.
0: Yeah.
1: Was Bob, right, as a, even as an Englishman, yeah. right? <laughs> was Bob Wilmer the coach at that time? Bob Wilmer came on in '90, so we had Mike Proctor. He was the first coach for South Africa, right? And then Bob Wilmer joined us in '93, '94. We oh, toured Pakistan, that. and um, we had a triangular tournament with Australia ourselves and Pakistan as the hosts, and and we were six from zero from six. Bob Wilmer's first six six games. It was a bit of a change for him. And then from a coaching point of view, and then also Kepler. Kepler was then dropped after that, yeah. left out, and Hansi Cornier took over the captaincy. So that was late 93, early 94.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you've had some, I mean, you played with uh, some absolute legends. I think the, sort of, the span of your career, as you say, it was the emergence of South Africa, or the return back to the international stage post-apartheid. Um, and then... By the time you sort of left off, you were firm. It was you, you were firmly set, and the players that you played with, the South African players that we saw come forward, uh, was a real conveyor belt of uh, top talent, really.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, I think we were really fortunate, in that our, our domestic seas structure was really strong. We, for a long time, only had five provincial teams and and six provincial teams. So, you know, at, at, during those years of apartheid, you would have rebel tours. We had. The Sri Lanka, a Sri Lankan team came out, a West Indian team, Australian. And the last one that came out was Mike Gatting's side that then got stopped after they just literally got there. In fact, yeah. Peter Marisburg, my hometown, there was a, a massive protest. And Gatting, I think it's the bravest thing I've ever seen. Uh, and and he, you know, he's obviously faced a lot of fast bowling in his time. But he walked through this crowd of pro- who were, I mean, they really were peaceful protesters, but you know, fairly intimidating. And, and they, they wanted to hand him a memorandum and, or petition. And uh, he walked through them and, and took the took petition and, and actually they canceled the tour from there. So so a really brave thing to do. Um, the fact that they were out there, you know, it, it obviously caused real issues around the world. Every time South Africa, we toured New as rugby on a rugby tour and guys were, pe- people were flower bombing from airplanes and protesters were running on and, and, and dropping um, sort of nails and things on the field so the game couldn't take place. Yeah. So it, it was an interesting time in South African cricket, but the domestic structure was really strong. So, you know, every team, every team almost had six or seven unofficial South African players in it. And, uh, and these were just the white guys because yeah, as, a, as a non-white player, you weren't included. So it wasn't even, you know, one-fifth of the entire cricket population. So the fact that they came out so strong, I think also, I mean, we obviously, we were, we were a very fit team. We were quite a physical bunch of guys. So we could kind of mix and match it with, with most. We battled in the subcontinent we just didn't play spin in South Africa at all. You know, a three day, we, our first class cricket was three days and to get a result in three days. I mean, Durban was nicknamed the Lawn for a very obvious reason, which is It's green.
0: true, it's true so, because when we had Alan Lamb on the show and um, I pointed out that he had a great, he was one of the most successful English batsmen against the, the great West Indian attack. And he said it was because when he was playing state cricket in South Africa, that he was kind of used to this kind of bowling um, and the fact that, as you say, he was playing with the South African international players um, on hard wickets, pace bowling. So he was kind of... It was ingrained in him at a young age of how to play that style of uh, attack.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had my debut, my first-class debut was quite an interesting story because I was the 12th man, I was 19. So kind of my first year at university and I was almost on the fringes, but we were the bottom of the log team. So they were thinking of bringing in some, some fresh blood um, because the old guys weren't performing that well. So they thought, okay, maybe we'll make a few changes. And as the 12th man, the morning of the game, just before the toss, Brian Whitfield, who was a left-hand opening batter, who actually had played, I think, the odd rebel game or South African game in, in that apartheid area. His wife had a baby. So he got a phone call. No mobile phones, obviously, in those days. And he had to rush off to hospital. We were just down to eleven. I mean, it was just I looked around the dressing room. Oh dear, we've got to play <laughs> that guy <laughs> in eleven. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, was, yeah, can you still carry the drink, Sir John? Because I I always mean, I said again, I had lots of energy. And I was buzzing around everywhere, <laughs> and it was. You talk about quality players. I mean, it was Garth LaRue, Stephen Jeffries, um, two, two Matthews, both Craig Matthews, Brett Matthews, Peter Curson, Dave Rundle was the spinner, Adrian Caper. You know, so Western Province were top of the log. Um, and they were just—they weren't the only team that. And I got a hundred, you know. So I, on, on my first-class debut, thanks to the baby being born that morning, uh, I, again, you know, I, and, and it's been a hundred years since somebody in, in in my province or my state had, had scored a hundred on debut. So kind of took pressure off me. I didn't score another hundred that season. I got a, a well-played seventy again on you know, tough conditions, where 180 was a good score for the for the whole team. I mean, we weren't scoring many. In your innings, you didn't go past 200 a lot in, yeah, in the different. entire innings. Yeah, yeah, very, very different. And uh, so, looking forward a
0: bit, we've got um, England coming down to South Africa um, mm-hmm. ahead of Christmas time. Um, you got any thoughts or predictions of how that's going to be?
1: Well, I'm just assuming that Cricket South Africa are going to sort themselves out first and foremost. I mean, it's been as the next player, we, we you know, I actually worked for Standard Bank when I retired. It was one of the major sponsors of. Of cricket in south africa for a long time so it was interesting to go from a, a train as a business banker with with my commerce degree that i eventually got and then we we started the pro 20. i mean my one season with Gloucester in 2003 i was blown away i mean it was the first year that t20 was played as at, at a league and bristol can only hold 5000 people i think i had about 5010 i don't know where to put the other 10 but it was just jam-packed you know every single game so when when we started that in, in south africa the pro 20 we called it standard bank with a sponsor so I then took over the sponsorship account with, with the cricket. And it was interesting perspective because as a player, you're quite insulated and you, know, you kind of feel that you, you believe you know the direction that everything should go pertaining to cricket. And you forget that there are other stakeholders in the game. You know And I think that's, that's something that was really, for me, it was a real eye-opener because sponsors aren't just people giving money. I and mean, they're giving money for a reason, not just because of the brand awareness, but because they also believe in, in that association and, and, and that connection and uh, what cricket can do for their brand with their clients. So it was a really interesting perspective seeing that happen. So, I, you know, I've kind of been watching with interest and seeing, well, not interest, more concern, what's been happening in cricket South Africa. So, I mean, we just can't wait. We haven't had any cricket. We have just started our domestic cricket. So most of our players, uh, you know, coming off a six or seven month layoff, a couple of guys that have been in the IPL, but our domestic cricket started two weeks ago, so we have been playing um, red ball though red ball cricket, first class cricket. So there's huge anticipation. Everybody, and like you say, I mean the schedule is so jam packed because everybody wants to play. Obviously, from a business perspective, um, you know you need the you need the broadcasts, you need people coming to the ground, which is not always the case in every country because of, because of the of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. every country has different scenarios. So from that point of view, we are desperate and. Even the world champions. I mean, if that doesn't you know, sell broadcast rights or create an interest, no matter if people are or not in the stadium, then then nothing ever will. So we're looking forward to it.
0: Are they going to sort out this mess with the administration in Cricket South Africa? You've had all these um, Well, Is it an easy thing to sort out?
1: Well, we thought it was. We actually thought it was sorted out. There was an interim board that had been... Um, an independent board that that had been, you know, sort of formed by the Minister of Sport. And, and, uh, um, you know, obviously we, with the ICC, and we've seen what's happened with Zimbabwe in the recent past, you know, as as soon as there's government intervention, that's a part of the ICC's constitution, um, they then just, they kind of pull the status of, of, of the member country. So if South African sports, if the ministry gets involved, which they have in a way, but they've been in contact with the ICC, so they kind of feel like they're doing things Without just saying we're we taking away, you know, the game of cricket from the, you know, the, the real stakeholders. And um, Cricket South Africa, the sort of member councils, who are the 14 presidents of all the provinces, they have now gone and said, "Oh, oh hang on, we are not going to accept this interim board because the interim board of very, um, uh, you sort of got legal backgrounds, commercial backgrounds, so 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 very specific with regards to governance." And let's get, because there has been there have been governance issues in Cricket South Africa for the last three years or four years. So the fact that they've had a, a very sort of governance focused and with obviously cricket expertise as well um, focused board, interim board that's advising and, and, you know, helping Cricket South Africa get its stuff together. It's a real concern that, that this is now, they've turned around to say the members council saying, well, no, we don't actually, it's not in our constitution. We can't be forced to take on this board because you can't tell us to do that because legally so they, they kind of they like I was gonna say they're not doing it Donald Trump but they're using every legal means to to not take the interim board and that's gonna really irritate the sports minister because he's been fairly patient up until now.
0: I think we're gonna have to um we're running out of time. I've just noticed on the clock and I know it's late over there. Um enjoy the PSL final tomorrow um Karate versus Lahore the Kings versus the calendars should be a good game from what we've seen so far, but we really appreciate you, uh, you taking time out, um, to speak to us, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again. And hopefully we'll, next time we talk to you, you'll be in Gothenburg and you'll be settled. And Barry, um, I'll be stuck. I'm stuck. On, uh, I'm our on the other. I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Of yeah, course. Yeah. But many thanks from both Paul and myself, uh, for, for taking. Sure. sure Paul. And, um, We'll uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Great to spend time with you. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, Darren.